I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Talk us through this arch that you've taken in this book that, that charts, charts the creation of, of these Yeah, this is, I mean, basically the thesis is why is it if you go from the Pakistan border, what used to be called the Northwest Frontier, right over to Nigeria, there are eight wars going on and there are about three big insurgencies. Um, You've had the collapse of state. I don't like failed states, but often they've been, on occasion they've been attacked from the outside. Failed state gives the impression that it's purely something which is sort of wrong with the people within that state, to my mind. Um, but why these states ha have collapsed, why wars have started, and these wars don't end. You know, really from 79, 80, and Afghanistan, we'd have a war, it's never really ended. Somalia, Somalia, 91. You know, if you look up most wars in a history book, you know, it says war 1914, 18, or, you know, there's a, date, there's a, there's a beginning and a termination date. Mm. These wars are peculiar. There seems to be no end to them. Uh, you have the growth of sectarianism. You have the outside intervention. The outside intervention normally failing. You know, you have other aspects. Why is it, for instance, that uh, nationalism and socialism that used to give a cohesion to nation states no longer do so. Really, I think from about the 1990s, they no longer had an appeal and they no longer were capable of forming the glue to hold a society together, even um, unjust and uh, uh, societies. They were no longer, furthermore, a vehicle for protest. In a way, the religion became a vehicle for protest. Now, why did this happen? And there are, there are disparate reasons for this, some to do with ideology, some to do with um, economics. Many of these states are resource-rich states, mostly oil states. Uh, oil states have a lot of money. Uh, but they work in a peculiar way. If you take Iraq, you know, it's basically a patronage system. People tend to focus on corruption at the top, which is gigantic, and perhaps underestimate that most Iraqis work for the state, uh, a great number of whom don't actually do much work. 
but I would say it sounds sort of a moral uh, sense here, but isn't, because it's a way a lot of the population is plugged into the oil revenues. Yeah. So you've got the population of Iraq, the moment is about 33 million. The number of people who work or have pensions from the state is about 7 million. Uh, a lot of these don't do any work. But the, the same thing is true in, Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan. There are about 700,000 who work for the state. Uh, again, this is they plug into the oil revenues uh, and don't necessarily do anything, which is state administration doesn't work. But this means you have a very sort of fragile um, uh, state because you have ad administrations that don't really work. It's very susceptible to running out of money. Uh, it increases sectarianism because in Iraq, if you're a member of the Dawah party, or which is the, the main sort of Shia political party, then your access to jobs is pretty good. If you're a Sunni um, and you're outside that or you're a Shia from the wrong province or the wrong party, your access to jobs is much better. So actually this emphasizes, this increases sectarianism uh, because somebody's whole livelihood may therefore depends on what sect they belong to. Mm. Um, so the, the aim of the book is to give a sort of narrative history drawn from sort of diaries and writings that I did at the time. Mm. Mostly, it's mostly about wars, starting with the Afghan war uh, in uh, 2001, then the yeah. uh, invasion of Iraq 2003. A lot of it is, it's, a lot of it is about the Iraqi yeah. war. And then sort of 2011, a certain amount about Libya, about Yemen, about Bahrain, but then mostly about Iraq, Syria, and the Caliphate as that developed. Mm. So trying to, trying to draw out general themes as to why these things happened. You know, there, there are other reasons. Uh, the growth of free market economics. Yeah. When you had, let's say, in Syria in the 70s, most of the economy is controlled by the state. If you come from some hard scrabble village or town in Syria, uh, you know, it's not great, it's authoritarian, but they probably get you a job, prices were pretty low. Um, uh, you could get sort of cheap food and so forth. Uh, now, a lot of those areas, which used to be supporters of the Ba'ath Party, are now the big support of the opposition. Yeah. And one of the things that happened was free market economics. If you introduce free market economics in authoritarian countries with no rule of law, um, everything is so biased towards those with political connections mm -hmm. that all the money flows towards a sort of group around the center, around Assad, mm -hmm. uh, it may be Alawites at the top, but the same was true in Libya with Gaddafi. You know, it's very difficult to start a business. But Gaddafi's sons have monopolized a lot of this. So free market economics, again, had a uh, made these states much weaker, made the base of the government much smaller, made them more vulnerable. I mean, in Damascus, by you know, up to 2011, you know, they weren't even playing the playing the Makabarat properly. They were trying to get past. Yeah, I was really sorry. Got to pay the Mukhabarat properly. Well, you know, yeah, that's a, it is pretty basic. But they were trying to get you know three hundred dollars um, 
a month and you know in a place where prices mm. Damascus Syria used to be very cheap mm -hmm. 2000 when Bashar al-Assad came in by 2011 quite expensive so so all these things sort of come together in but the it, it is a very complicated pattern but there is no question to my mind about the final outcome of what happened uh, which we have these appalling wars we have which don't end we have these societies shattered we have this growth of sectarianism. We have this sort of <coughs> intervention of foreign powers. And that again is one of the reasons why in Iraq and Syria it's so difficult to end these wars, is that you have a factionalized society. Uh, but when one of those factions, one of those parties uh, is doing badly, uh, they don't look to compromise with the other side. They look to get more support from their outside okay. backer. Yeah. Um, so although outside intervention is often in the name of uh, ending the war, in fact, it gives it an extra impulse, uh, you know, like British policy was and indeed is, you know, no end, uh, the war must end by getting rid of Assad. But if you go to Damascus, you discover about the last thing that's going to happen, Assad is, is going to go because he controls most of the country. You know, probably about 16 million people in Syria now, if you should be 22 million, but if you deduct the refugees outside the country. But 10, 11 million of those are in government-controlled areas. And this has been true since end of 2012. You know, there are 14 provincial capitals in Syria. Assad has never controlled less than 12. Uh, it wasn't like this, this he would go. My point is this, that if you say, uh, yes, this terrible war was end, as British governments have tended to do, and it must go by Assad going. But since Assad is not going, in fact, what you're saying is this war must go on, and we don't care if it does. Um, of course, when you argue that, you also say, well, oh, I see you're pro-Assad. And, you know, it, it, it's because always the problem with journalism yeah. is explanation is taken for justification. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me that's just the concrete situation. Uh, certain things are not going to happen. Um, I mean, we will. I, I do want to ask you about uh, Syria and, and Iraq, but it, it, it strikes me that what you're talking about now and indeed the style of this book is that, you, you, you know, one of the reasons that you are so powerful and compelling as a journalist is that you, you have the high res on the ground reporting combined with take a step back analysis. Um, and that we don't really see that happening so much in the same person. Um, and you talk at the beginning of this book about how critical that is. So, you know, we have reporters doing the narrative on the ground, and then we have history writers in 20 years writing history. But, but we lack that capacity for the kind of analysis that you're making that would presumably not lead to, you know, Libya off the back of having seen what a failure Iraq was. Do you, is that, do you think that's driving a lot of the way uh, journalism of this region and of these wars is narrated? That's quite good one. I mean, what, yeah, that's what I try to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's pretty obvious, you try and establish what's really happening by going to a place. And so you're an eyewitness, which is the kind of idea of reporting. Um, and you know, and then, and then that's very, in a way, it's very simple. <clears throat> you know, you go to Libya, 
you have a look at the uh, you know the, the rebels, the militia, so-called, in Benghazi in 2011, it becomes pretty clear these are a sort of ragbag, um, and that their public image in the West is much exaggerated. Mm. Uh, that if they take over, they they can't take over. They'll be complete anarchy. This should be very obvious from the beginning. And then try and sieve out all the propaganda. But there, there, it seems to me there's much more propaganda than there used to be. There's much more. It's much more sophisticated than it did. Mm. And I remember in Libya in 2011, there was the story because you probably heard it. it was very influential at the time, which was that the Libyan army had been ordered by Gaddafi or its commanders to rape the um, uh, women in opposition areas. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman claimed to have conducted a survey, I think she was a, from London, uh, she was Libyan, but she was a psychiatrist. Like, she uh, conducted a survey, she issued 70,000 uh, questionnaires. This is in the middle of a country at war in yeah. uh, eastern Syria. 50,000 of these have been returned uh, <laughs> in this area where people wouldn't have received questionnaires before. Going through it, she'd been struck by the number of rapes. It's, very, it's all very concrete, very specific. People are doing concrete. If you ever do propaganda, it'll always be very concrete. There are, two, I guess, 237 people who've been raped. Because cumulatively, lots of detail like that becomes convincing, although you probably made it up seconds before. Now, it seems to me this is fairly obviously untrue, both in the process of what had happened. Then, uh, you had Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, the UN went to this woman. She couldn't produce any, anybody. Uh, she couldn't produce any of her questionnaires. It became pretty evident to them she'd made the whole thing up or somebody had manipulated her to do so. But by the time that was exposed, the story had moved on. Yeah. Um, nobody paid much attention. I mean, do, do you remember the uh, Kuwaiti babies case? In, yeah. Uh, in, in, um, 1990, that the Iraqi yeah. soldiers have been throwing um, babies onto the floor out of the of hospital. incubators. Yeah. yeah, and it turned out it was the daughter. The, that a Kuwaiti woman said she'd been in the hospital at the time, gave evidence before Congress, enormous publicity. Uh, turned out she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador in Washington. She hadn't mm -hmm. been in Kuwait at the time. It was a complete mm -hmm. invention. But, but it, I'm sure not by her. Somebody thought about this and thought, what will have massive impact? Would it be found out eventually? Yes, do I care? No, I don't, you know. Because it'd be too late by then. Because it's too matter. late. So anyway, one could go on about this, but a lot of, to try and sieve out all this, the, the propaganda, I'll put it in, so some of this will be true, but what, what else is happening? Try to get a picture mm. of what's happening. And then to try and put it into a general context. Um, because quite a lot of journalism, you know, it's very specific to the day. Um, and a lot of history is basically second-hand. Right. Historians are often rather rude about journalists, but then you actually look at the footnotes to their books. You and see Endless in New York Times, <laughs> and um, the, um, and it's in it's second-hand, you know. Right. It's, uh, you know, journalists are sometimes surprised if they become witnesses in a court case, and, the, you know, the, they're asked, did you see this personally? No, somebody else told me. Their evidence get kicked out. It's not second hand, you know, it may be third hand. Um, so to try to do that, and somehow it seems to me it's got worse. Uh, you know, a lot of the coverage of Syria is from Beirut yeah. or from Turkey. People haven't actually seen this. So they're getting stuff, 
you know, from media activists. But who are these? These are people who are partisan. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you're fighting a war, everybody has propaganda in the war. We in Britain, you know, in the Second World War, Ministry of Information, you have propaganda, all this. But journalists should see this, historians should see this for what it is. It, it's a, it's a, maybe sincere, but it's a partisan and partial attempt, description of the truth. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, it is sometimes um, a thankless task for, for when you were talking earlier about, you know, people assuming that you're some kind of Assad apologist uh, for pointing certain things out. And in your book, there's somebody, there's a, a, a Syrian intellectual who's has a very irate phone call with you because that's right. Back yeah. in 2012, we were very much the Western media was very much in the narrative that Bashar al-Assad was going to fall, mm. and you back then said, "Well, I doubt it. No, he isn't." And this Syrian yeah. intellectual was mad at you, wasn't he, for saying? Yeah, that. and I remember I just a very nice fellow. He was a film director. I had a cup of coffee with him in Beirut, and. Um, then I'd been in Damascus. It's fairly obvious I'd written that Damascus, uh, that uh, Assad wasn't going to go. And then I, when I got back to the Lebanese-Syrian border, I just crossed into Lebanon. I'd switched on my Lebanese phone, and immediately he was a good rag, and he was on the phone shouting, "Shame on you! Shame on the independence! Why are you saying that Assad will stay?" Yeah. And I said, "Because I'm, you know, we're good or ill. That's going to happen." He said, "No, no, no. They, they're divided. They're going to fall. Why don't you write about that? How divided they all are, and so forth." Uh, this was sort of straight up and down, um, you know, in sort of more muted terms, you get that a lot. Um, the, um, and it's very sort of, you know, distorting. I mean, as you couldn't, even supposing we wanted to invade Iraq, or Syria, even if we all had a sort of neo-imperial rush of blood to the head, and we wanted to do these things, um, even then we would need to know what the real political and military landscape was. We couldn't sort of do it with all our uh, plans and everything else based on myths and wishful thinking. And you could see that last, last year when uh, Parliament voted to bomb mm -hmm. ISIS in Syria. Um, it was, you know, Hillary Benn made a much praised speech saying, you know, this what a terrific thing this was. This was going to be like Britain in 1940. It was Guernica. I mean, as soon as people mentioned Britain in 1940, I would sort of sit on my wallet and sort of think, <laughs> um, you know, this is probably, our great thought is probably not coming. But, um, <laughs> It has a sort of phony feel about it, but you know. And what happened? If you look at the Select Committee for Defence, finally elicited. I mean, the power has a common secretary. Finally elicited from a rather unwilling Ministry of Defence and government that there have been 65 airstrikes since last year. Mm. Most of them in the first uh, two months, and it's running at two or three airstrikes a month. Why is that? Because it's not much use unless you have some allies on the ground. No, so but we do. We have seventy thousand moderates that Cameron talked about. But again, you know, it ob they obviously don't exist. Not because nobody's ever found them, but, but because you can't. You you know, the Americans use the Kurds, and so you need somebody to call in the airstrikes. Uh, they don't have anybody. That's why uh, there are so few. Um, 
I mean, I don't think it's a great idea anyway, but my point is that you can't, whatever you want to do, you must have a, a, a realistic view of what that, what's really happening. Otherwise, you have this wishful thinking and um, the, uh, and the media is very complicit in this mm. uh, and not skeptical enough about this. But it, I mean, it's not wholly negative. And I just mentioned, you know, the Select Committee on uh, the House of Commons Defence <coughs> Committee, you know, led by a Conservative, actually were completely Sartaria-like in finding out these facts. You know, one shouldn't be wholly gloomy about <coughs> these. Um, and uh, and some of these things ultimately aren't that difficult to find out. Right. In this case, I think it was quite difficult to actually get figures, but uh, these things can be found out. Hmm. I mean, one of the things um, that's that I really like about this book is that it, it's full of um, characters, because so much of it is reportage, it's full of characters that you met along the way. Um, and particularly the section charting the Iraq war and the aftermath, um, and, and particularly the lack of planning for the aftermath and what a complete disaster that was, the idea that you would invade and then occupy a country with just A, so little understanding of how it worked, and B, so little planning for how you would administer that occupation. And uh, you have this great story with um, your driver, Basim Abdulrahman, right? Uh, yeah. Who, I mean, in the end, you say, to, you say, but for millions of Iraqis like Basim, the war has robbed them of their homes, their jobs, and often their lives. It has brought them nothing but misery and ended their hopes of happiness. It has destroyed Iraq. Tell us about Basim and how emblematic he is of Yeah, it's a, it's a tragic story, um, which I was involved in a bit. He was a guy who was sort of driving for me. Actually, I didn't actually need another driver. He was a friend of uh, my main driver. Right. And we needed, that time in this 2004 in Iraq, when the sectarian war was getting worse, and also there was lots of kidnapping. Yeah. And one way you try and avoid that was have what's called a trail car, which sounds rather, rather obvious. You have a car following your car to yeah. see if somebody's following you. And you have hand radios to see if anybody's doing that. So he was, he was the sort of trail car behind, which was partly to sort of give him a job. Uh, and it was a very sort of nice fellow, uh, but he was a Sunni from living in a mainly uh, area called Jihad. Um, He's in Baghdad. Sh Baghdad, yeah, mainly Shia, uh, Shia neighborhood. Then sort of things got rough, and um, he went off to Damascus, like a lot of Sunni did from Baghdad, and stayed there for a bit. Then he came back. He found his house had been occupied by a Shia family. They'd got a document from the Mahdi army. They denounced him as being a member of the Saddam's Mukhabarat. This mm -hmm. poor guy is just a driver, you know. This is not. So he can't go back. In fact, the people in these neighbors said, "Get out of here quickly!" His old neighbors, because you know, as soon as they find out this, they'll come and kill you. So he goes off and goes and stays with relatives, you know. Um, but, you know, he's staying in one room of a distant cousin with his whole family, you know. And then he, uh, like a lot of people, thought he wanted to leave the country. This is a guy in his 50s. He only speaks Arabic. And he wants to get to Sweden. Um, and, you know, you could find brokers who say, I'll get you to Sweden. And there was a sort of a very complicated way. He went to, to uh, Malaysia 
the reason is that for a time, on an Iraqi passport, you'd get into Malaysia without having a, a, a you, you could get a visa at the airport. Um, then he went to Cambodia, then he got a bus down to, uh, from Phnom Penh to Saigon. And then claiming at this point, the broker had given him a Lithuanian passport. Uh, and he and the others, who were qu quite brown, were claiming to be Lithuanians going to Sweden. Um, but by, and it had worked for a bit because the, the Lithuanians and the Vietnamese had twigged this, so they were sort of arrested and so forth. So they come back, he'd sold part of his, what he had, his wife's jewelry to do this, you know. Uh, he sort of half told me he was going to do this. I said, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. It's not going to work, you know. But, you know, people get desperate. It's easy yeah. for me to be rational about it. But this is a guy, you know, it's hopeless. What yeah. is he going to do? He was driving a taxi in uh, Baghdad. But you're a Sunni driving a taxi in Baghdad. You know, it's, you don't want to go into too many Shia neighborhoods, you know. Uh, at that time, things got a bit better since. Mm -hmm. And there are an awful lot of taxi drivers in Baghdad. You know, you don't make much money. Uh, it's dangerous. You know, he's living in bed. So things are pretty hopeless. Um, you know, just, uh, uh, Mosley is under attack. But you know, people talk about the sort of the success of the American surge that David Petraeus, um, General Petraeus, orchestrated. 2006, Baghdad used to be a sort of diverse city, you know, with many mixed neighborhoods. There were kind of predominantly, you know, areas that were Sunni, uh, Shia, some Christian uh, bits. But you know, there are quite a lot of mixed areas. But then during this, the, the Sunni were pressed back into a small number of uh, areas. So it ended up as a massive Shia city. Um, and without the rest of the, with the whatever, one of the uh, American embassy documents that WikiLeaks got hold of described the sort of Sunni enclaves as being islands of fear. Mm. And that's sort of, sort of true. So, uh, Basim was sort of part of this uh, whole sort of tragedy. Uh, this doesn't affect everybody. It affected people differently, depending who you were, what area you came from, what sect you came from, and so forth. Uh, but he was one of sort of many, many casualties. Yeah. Um, Avoidable, avoidably. Yeah, I try to sort of, uh, in a situation like that, uh, first of all, people on the ground, because their lives are involved, are incredibly well informed about things that directly impinge on them. You know, they will know everything in their neighborhood, which is happening, because that they, their their families are at risk. Yeah. So I was in uh, Kirkuk recently, and um, truck drivers very very good source of information, because they have to drive the roads, so they really need to know who controls what checkpoints. Yeah. One must have to bribe them. And or and secondly, they may get killed. They need to know what yeah. banners to display or not display, or, or just not go there. What? You know. So these guys were sleeping under a bridge, and I thought they probably have more information than the whole CIA has on who really holds, <laughs> because their lives are involved. You know, they say, "Yeah, no, no, you can't do that." It was Kadai Bazmullah, it's one of the Shia militias, one of the more vicious ones. Uh, control that checkpoint. Very dangerous for us. You know, guys have disappeared there. You know, what about over here? Yeah, well, they're. Um, the, uh, that's a bit more, you know, it's the bad organization or it's the army here. 
That's one of the reasons all these suicide bombs get through is that all these checkpoints are rather like you know customs posts. The guys there are really interested in uh, any big vehicle that goes past. Uh, you know they they pay money normally a lot of money. Mm. So you want to get to Kirkuk to Baghdad is not very far, but it's about fifteen hundred dollars for a truck. More if you're carrying chickens or something like that because you can't afford to wait, so they know you can't bargain. This isn't normally paid by the truck drivers, it could be paid by a sort of broker beforehand. But the, the truck drivers might have to pay pay something, which is one of the reasons it's so expensive in the Baghdad markets, because then, you know, who eventually pays it's the consumer. Yeah. And um, it's the same in Syria. Again, how do these bombs get through? It's because of you just, you know, a car goes through, you pay a little bit, vehicle much more. Uh, that's what interests the checkpoint, not what, uh, not what you, uh, what you've got on board. I mean, they don't, the guy doesn't know it's a suicide bomb. You know, doesn't know it's a bomb, but they, they're not really but they're interested not in finding out. For them it's also occurred to them that you know the number of people who have been decorated for stopping uh, suicide bombers is sort of on the short side, and. Uh, <laughs> The um, so they don't try too hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots, <coughs> there's lots more um, incredible stories from your time in Iraq, uh, including uh, being momentarily or sort of temporarily detained by the Mahdi army. But uh, I want to just jump to. Um, you're going to have to buy the book for that. I want to just jump to um, Syria which you also um, go into. The, and you say in the book, and you've said this in your articles as well, um, when you talk about the sort of the, the, the different um, agents involved in Syria now, how it's so much bigger than uh, the, the Syrian factions and people themselves. And you, you've said a few times that, you know, the only solution, if there is one, is, is some kind of brokering between the US and Russia. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, that's very simple, that you need the main players. Who are, There's no point in having a ceasefire unless you can get hold of those who are doing most of the firing. Is uh, or, can, can, or can influence those who do. So, you know, in theory, the US can influence its allies, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, Qatar, and it can direct to indirectly influence the armed opposition they're supporting, and they can more directly support the armed opposition that you know the U.S. is supporting. Yeah. Um, so um, the and the Russians should be able to influence Assad and so forth. Uh, so that is the best avenue to go down. But as we saw the recent ceasefire, you know, it's just first of all it's extremely difficult to do because there are so many players involved, you know, on the armed opposition. What was in the last ceasefire for al-Nusra, uh, since the whole point of this was to get the moderate opposition to separate from al-Nusra. Yeah. There were one or two problems about here. One, there isn't much of a moderate opposition. Secondly, you know, they're about to say bye-bye to al-Nusra, you know. Will this go down well? You know, these guys, some of the sort of toughest and more ruthless people on the planet. Uh, they won't let them do it. And also, they've been fighting together. They're sort of comrades in arms. It's really not going to happen. Um, and, and one of the things about sort of official propaganda, one of the sort of horrifying things, is the, the degree to which governments actually believe it. 
mm-hmm. you know, that they, they whole policies are based on facts that they basically have concocted themselves. Um, so, you know, how, why should al-Nusra agree to this, to a ceasefire basically directed against themselves? Then, you know, how far were the Americans behind it? You know, the first, you know, suddenly there's a bombing of the Syrian army. 62 people are killed. Mm-hmm. They say this is an accident. Of course, the Syrian government doesn't believe this. And with some reason, because the Americans have never bombed. The Americans said we weren't aiming at them. We were aiming at Islamic State. But the Americans had previously never bombed Islamic State when he was fighting the Syrian army. So this would have been uh, very peculiar. So I don't know what the explanation is of this. And then uh, there was the aid convoy. Then the aid convoy, but you know, um, but one has to, uh, you know, they're besieging these areas. Uh, they're besieging, they're bombing, they're shelling, they're hitting uh, hospitals, they're killing uh, uh, civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, but Again, you know, this sort of, um, I mean, very today somebody sent me a sort of a, uh, a video taken by, I think it's the Aleppo Media Center, of sort of uh, children being buried and so forth, and this is appalling. But if you only have, if the only thing that appears on television is that, and in none of these videos do you ever see an armed guy. There are no fighters, but there are 10,000 fighters in Aleppo most of them on the Islamist side. Um, so it's perfectly reasonable. I was being asked by the paper, should they run? I said, of course you should run this, you know, because I think it's probably true. But you must also try and run things to give a, you know, a balanced picture of what's happening, uh, uh, you know, of our men in East Aleppo and so forth, so just to give a realistic picture. Because you can't... If, if you know, if a policy is wholly determined by atrocities, and view of atrocities, then uh, you know the, the war isn't going to end. This will be wholly unrealistic, um, and so um, in. Sorry, I can't remember what the question you. The Russia-U.S. thing. Just how likely it is, really, and from what you're saying, no, not very. Not very, but the only way to go, and. Um, so is it going to be decided on the battlefield, or is it going to be defined, could it be ended by diplomacy? It looks more now it's going to be the battlefield. Um, and what you've had previously is one side does well, then the other side gets hold of its, hold of its outside backers and gets more support from them, then they push back. And this goes on and on and on. But maybe, you know, eventually one side will simply dominate the other. Um, you know, it's noticeable. Turkey, for instance, hasn't. Those things haven't happened. Turkey mm-hmm. hasn't invaded, and it's noticeable. Turkey is going on about Mosul. It's yeah. not going on about Aleppo. Yeah, it's uh, a piece of the action in Mosul. Yeah, and it's very sort of. It's very sort of. It, it's all looks neat on maps, you know, but it's very sort of disintegrated, fragmented on the ground. I don't. I don't directly sort of meet. Daesh guys for rather obvious reasons, but I do sort of contact them sometimes through WhatsApp. Again, you want to be a little careful because one doesn't quite know who one's talking to, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. direct. By the way, the 21 guy who actually seemed 
he was saying Gerabulus. He said, no, we didn't pull out a Gerabulus. We just sort of shaved our beards off, you know, so Kaiser's <laughs> still there. And he said, furthermore, they, they, the Kurds, they didn't. They say they believe man, left, left Manbij, this town to the south. He said, no, they just changed their uniforms. For Syrian Kurds speak Arabic just as much as um, um, uh, Syrians, Syrian mm. Arabs do. Mm. So it's not true in Iraq. Uh, Iraqi Kurds speak Kurdish. Yeah. So you couldn't just switch. But uh, in... Um, in, uh, in Syria, it's very easy to switch your uniform. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Just take off whatever identifies you as Kurds. Um, and so, it, you know, that's all sort of, uh, you know, most people in Islamic State, a lot of these are exiled Nusra and vice versa. Um, I do, I have got lots more questions about the details in this book, but I'm going to have to save them um, because I do want to open up questions to the audience. <coughs> sure, is there a mic? There is. So if you want to put your hands up, if you've got a question and a, a mic will come round. Is anyone putting their hand up? A question from the internet. A question from the internet, excellent. Uh, yes, sorry, this is streaming on Facebook at the moment. And there are lots of questions. Um, Phyllis, Philip uh, asks, if the West's understanding of the Middle East lags behind the Middle East's understanding of the West? Yeah, that's a fantastic good question. Uh, um, difficult to say. Um, probably quite a lot of things in the Middle East, in Iraq, people do understand, or in Syria. I mean, they're full of conspiracy theories as well. Um, the... Um, West understanding of the Middle East, pretty limited, I'd say. One can be over-derisive in these sort of things, because it is, it is genuinely very complicated. 
as to who is do, doing what to whom in Syria and Iraq. There are so many people involved. You know, and some people are very visible, like the Russians, let's say, in Syria. But the Iranians are enormously important. Um, and the, there's a sort of Shia axis of people, Shia, who think, uh, you know, if we don't fight and win in Syria, we'll be fighting in, in Iraq or we'll be fighting in Iran or we'll be fighting in uh, South Beirut. Yeah, it really so, is existential. So it is an existential fight. Mm. So you have a lot of these militias uh, coming from Iraq, <clears throat> uh, moving into uh, moving into Syria. Um, money as well. When the Iraqis had money before 2014, it was always blamed on the Iranians. They're financing the uh, Assad. Actually, it wasn't it because the Iraqis it was uh, giving about two or three billion. Um, but then the price of oil went down. They didn't have that kind of money. So there were all these very complicated uh, things, and um, and sometimes when you're writing about it, you think, shall I add, you know, well, the militias on the border, you know, in um, with the fighting for the Turk, you know, in northern these are Turkmen's, you know, and then distinguish between Sunni and Shia Turkmen's, you know. And you mm. can sense, you, at this point, you may be losing your audience. Your editor is going to cut that because you then yeah, have to No, they won't cut it, but you, know, they, they, uh, you can feel the, uh, the, the reader, poor old reader, thinking There's too many <laughs> life's too short. Yeah. The, uh, and, um, mm. you know, and, uh, Kurd, but well, what kind of Kurd? Sunni or Shia, the Thaili Kurds, you know, all these uh, different things. You know, around Mosul, you know, Yazidis, Shabak. Um, the different types of Christians, the, um, you know, all these are fascinating, actually. I always find it very, very interesting. Um, of course, this is why the LRB um, magazine exists, so that you can explore these things in depth to, to an audience that will read it to the end. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman here with a question, and there's a lady a few seats behind. So the gentleman with the, who just had his hand up? You did. There you go. Yes. The, you know, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, we know what it did there. Can you imagine, though, uh, an end to the Saddam uh, Hussein era where evolving into something different? And it's been capable of being done bloodlessly without an internal civil war and eruption, given, you know, the particular suppression of Shiite side and the Kurds over those years. It must have been pressure in the system, could it have gone, could it have been evolved bloodlessly? I think it's sort of difficult to do. I think that, you know, they could have made a case for war, you know, but it was always deeply deceptive because I think there are two things about the, what happened in 2003 that people get a little bit wrong, which is they put together the invasion and the occupation. Now, they might just have got away with an invasion which said, yeah, we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist, but, um, and purely for humanitarian reasons, and then out we get. But actually, they occupied the country. It became a real, I was there, a real sort of imperial occupation. Everything was controlled by Americans. Money was controlled by Americans, not even the British at this point, mm -hmm. despite our hopes of being influential there. Uh, you know that uh, the British had very little influence in uh, in Baghdad, uh, and it was the occupation. Now, why did they occupy? Well, the, the reason I was 
that they faced a real dilemma. They, which they, they faced in 91 first, and they, they, from the, this is the Americans. If they got rid of Saddam Hussein, who would benefit? Well, there were probably the Shia would take over from uh, the Sunni uh, Shia religious party, and Iran would benefit. They didn't want that, and Syria to a degree. They didn't want this to happen. Uh, come 2003, they could see the same thing was going to happen. So what do they do about this to prevent the Iranians and the others taking over or being influential in Iraq? They occupy the country. And that's where the resistance came from. It came from the Sunni, it came from the Shia, it came from everywhere. Um, and that's why, you know, they were saying if they'd had a plan what to do after. Mm. Well, the plan should have been to get out. Iraqis don't like being occupied. No, no, do, no, do Afghans. No, do any you know. I can't remember in Afghanistan. It. I, I think it's in the book. In <laughs> Afghanistan, I was in, um, sorry, I was, I was in um, Northwest Frontier, which now has a new name, but actually I can't remember. But in one of the provinces there, I was talking to a, a Pakistani colonel who um, uh, uh, commanded uh, Pashtun troops uh, in the area. It was a Punjabi, but he said, look, I, uh, he was very intelligent. He said, I, I speak Pashtun and so forth. And he said, no, tell me about some Afghanistan. You know, he said, this British and American thing about winning hearts and minds. You know, How's that going? I said, well, not so well, so far as I know. He said, he said, what sort of say to you? You know, the problem thing I said, I've been dealing, you know, with Pashtun troops, you know, could be about 3,000 men. And, you know, for 15 years, I speak their language. I haven't noticed something about Pashtun culture. <laughs> he said, they really hate foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it's a very simple truth, which is just in Iraq and, you know, in Whitehall, in Washington, they, they hadn't taken on board. You know. No flowers, no sweets. Yeah. Exactly. Amazing. Um, there, was a, there was a lady, a couple of... There, there we go. And I wonder if um, we should also... Are there lots of questions online? So maybe we should go to you. Okay. So just do, deal with real people first. <laughs> they are real people. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> you think they are. Okay. Could I pretend to be real? Just let this lady ask her. I wanted to ask you. You talked about how you talked about how the um, neocon um, uh, economics oh. affected the distribution of power and money in uh, Middle East economies, and I wondered if you could explain what the mechanism was, because presumably it wasn't things like selling off um, the water and the railways and things like that, which is what it's meant in our part of the world. Well, it, you know, you used to have things that were manufactured there. Um, generally, that stopped happening. State factories got smaller and smaller. Um, you know, the economy had been dominated by the state. That, I mean, a lot of these functions just stopped happening. Um, the you could see that in places like Damascus, you know, in the center of Damascus is one. I always it was wonderful, you know. But the whole you got to the outskirts of Damascus, and these are the areas where the um, opposition was strongest. You know, it's really shanty towns, um, and you could see the same. Uh, you know, it's exacerbated also in Iraq by sanctions. You know, who do sanctions hit? Uh, they had hit the poor. You know, they actually make the guys at top richer because they can sort of get control. You have a limited supply of goods. The guys with political power can control it. So in Iraq, Uday, uh, um, Saddam's elder son controlled the uh, cigarettes coming in. Every so often, Saddam would ban the imports of cigarettes from Jordan. 
for some reason. And uh, the real reason was that Uday controlled the cigarette um, smuggling. Iraqis uh, smoked like chimneys. And it could come through Kurdistan. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, Uday, and the, uh, the Kurdish end was handled by Nechavan, the current prime minister, Nechavan Bazani. And uh, this would come. They were actually fake cigarettes. They're made in, uh, in uh, uh, southeast Turkey. There's a big free trade area which manufactures all kinds of cigarettes, uh, well, like which are somewhat, somewhat like, what? Fake brands, you mean? <laughs> yeah, no, they, they will do all brands, like, I don't smoke anymore, but Rothmans are fake brands, all these other cigarettes. And then they have their own brands, which they've invented. Ah. People often think, and I remember in Iran, used to think, if you look, the number of lines under, on it would tell you if it was a real or fake. Uh, but actually, they were all fake. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's just an illustration. If you, if you have an authoritarian government that can control trade and so forth, yeah. they don't suffer from sanction. Who does suffer from sanction? You know, it's people who are in hospital, you know, because you can't have just in Damascus, in a hospital in Damascus, you know. They can't, any item which has, there's no US exports to Syria, and any item which has 10% American uh, um, input into any item, uh, you also need a special license. This mm -hmm. is so complicated, you know, you want to bring in uh, x-ray machinery or something, it just can't be done. And, and, and this isn't, a, you know, a, this is not a secret. There was a UN report which was publicized about this, quoting people from all these big aid agencies, saying you can't bring in these different things which we need uh, for aid, mm -hmm. not just in government-held areas, but in opposition-held areas as well. So, you know, people at the bottom suffer. Uh, it's not often not very obvious because, you know, very small babies, you know, die in hospital, you know, uh, old people die earlier, you know, there's more illness, all these things happen, uh, and they're not very visible. It's not like a sort of shell coming down or something like that. Um, but, um, but sorry, the, the, my main point is that where the government controls these things, um, the if you have a sort of free market one it's just not a free market because they control it and they can also make a lot of money so money tends to be concentrated at the top okay who else had their hand up was this how, how are we doing for time can we take a round of questions let's take three yeah let's do that so time. there was a couple of gentlemen here and there's one here on the right Mine will be very short, and it's a rather naive question, which you've answered in part. But what I've never understood is that after, for good or bad, 300 years of British imperialism and the knowledge of the Foreign Office of how that worked and didn't work, and after 150 years odd of American imperialism and their understanding of what works and doesn't work, was it so naively unacted upon after the occupation of Iraq in the 2003 war? Well, it's a good question. I've never quite just discovered... Let me answer each one very quickly, but it's... it's uh, sorry. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, which is very okay. short. Uh, but, it, but it's a very important question, was why did the Foreign Office, you know, they, in concrete terms, they dropped their, you know, uh, their language school. It became, if you were a specialist, there's a friend of mine who in the, was in the Foreign Office who speaks good Farsi and Arabic. He was telling me the other day, definitely held back my career. 
I lacked managerial skills. Uh, I remember in uh, Basra, there was a British uh, military uh, intelligence guy, captain I knew, who kept on being kept on. He was the only one of them who spoke Arabic there. Um, so why was this sort of denigration of speciality? And uh, I'm not quite sure, maybe overconfidence. Maybe there was something about the, particularly the Blair era, but it wasn't just true that, you know, it's all spin and so forth. But it's an interesting question. Hi, uh, my question will always be uh, also be quite short. Um, what is your perspective on the upcoming American election uh, and the possibility for uh, improvement in diplomatic terms uh, in Syria? I'd have thought the opposite, really, oh, but maybe no change, you know, but Hillary sort of, you know, first of all, she's actually on record as saying there's a difference what she says privately and publicly which is a nice way of saying there's a difference between what I say which is true and what is not true, you know. Uh, so one's uh, sort of uh, confidence in her is down a bit. Um, uh, you know, how far does she believe? She, she seems to be much closer to the sort of foreign policy establishment in Washington, who, uh, which uh, Obama's pretty derisive of, particularly in that very interesting Atlantic uh, interview that he did with uh, Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, very contemptuous of them. She's much closer to that. Of, um, and various people who are tipped to have high office uh, talk about, you know, developing, I thought people would have given up on this, developing a moderate force will fight both Assad and ISIS and jihadis and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, they tried that, hasn't happened. So maybe no change. Um, uh, but if there is a change, maybe, maybe for the worse. I mean, Obama gets criticized for all these things he hasn't done. And, of course, you're always vulnerable because you can't prove that if you had done them, it would have been disastrous. Mm. But I think he has a degree of caution and a degree of sort of intellectual rigor in looking at these things, which a lot of other people in the administration haven't had. Can I just ask you, there's a gentleman here, there's also a lady at the back. And I wonder if we can take a question from one of the fake people. Let's take a fake, fake, fake question. question. No, no, they're, they're probably out there. <laughs> Thank you. The, uh, the Battle of Karbala began in 680 AD. When do you think it will end? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, there was, a, there was a winner, but it's, I mean, you know, I suppose that what I mean is, you know, will Shia sectarian differences, will they go on fighting? Um, I suppose so. For a lot of, the, I mean, there has always been friction. There has been fighting, but not quite to the intensity one sees today. You know, why would you have this increase in sectarianism? I think probably, you know, uh, Khomeini, the Iranian Revolution. This was the first popular revolution led by a religious leader. Simultaneously, you have Russian invasion of Afghanistan. This uh, radicalizes um, uh, Sunni jihadis and so forth. Uh, that's why you have the, the sudden upsurge in it. Because always there, there was substrata, but that's why the, the upsurge, and eventually, you know, that will dissipate, but obviously it hasn't happened yet. So, just one there, and there's a... She's still... Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, my question is slightly related to that. I'm interested to know what light you can shed on the situation in Mosul, and as much as the media representation of the city seems to be a a Sunni population or um, 
sort of held hostage, pr prisoner of, uh, of the extremists, when in fact your writing seems to show that there's a tremendous amount of support from the Sunni population for ISIS, simply because of the population is often you know, terrified of the thought of Shia extremism in general and Shia extremism in the form of the um, Iraqi, Iraqi army. Um, what, what, what effect will that have on you know, the, the policy there? Yeah, I wouldn't say tremendous amount of support because the answer is I, I don't know, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, one feature in Mosul from the beginning, from the takeover, is not liking the ISIS, not liking, oh, this is a pretty sophisticated city, you know, women reduced to chattels, uh, you know, the violence, the beheadings, everything else. On the other hand, fear of what will happen if the Iraqi army comes back. That's a pretty bad time with the Iraqi, particularly the Iraqi police. What happens if the uh, uh, Shia paramilitaries come in? Uh, and of course, uh, ISIS, by its atrocities, has made uh, sectarianism much worse. So there's there's that. There's also sort of you know genuine you know they've been educating people you know that sort of most of these suicide bombers are Iraqis these days. They're not foreigners. They're people you know they particularly young teenagers who they uh, cultivate and, uh, you know, in districts they show films of battles and so forth and they recruit people and so forth. So they do have uh, support there. <coughs> and most of these people, I was asking, you know, these days in battles if, they, um, if, you, if the bodies were of Iraqis or foreigners and they said pretty well invariably Iraqis and they'd fought pretty hard. So obviously they do have a core of support uh, among among who become fighters and a core of support, presumably uh, outside that. How big it is, we don't we don't know. I mean, I suspect in Mosul, most people uh, are want them gone, but they don't. You know, they also look at the alternative. You know, it's the same in Syria and Damascus. A lot of people don't much like Assad, but they're even more petrified of the alternative. Um. So this might also be a bit of a naive question, but I was just following on from what the gentleman around the corner said about the 300 years of foreign office experience, and also the massive amount of research that you've obviously been able to do on the ground about what's going on. And I was quite struck by what you said about the government's sort of limited, relatively limited knowledge about what's happening. And I wondered if you thought that there's a, a level at which they actually don't care that much what's really going on on the ground. They've just got their own agenda that they're sort of pursuing irrespective of, of what people who, you know, on the ground are actually thinking or feeling or doing. Yeah, I, th I think that that's right. But I think it, it works in two ways. I think, first of all, when they came into Iraq in 2003, why did they make so many mistakes? Well, they actually, they thought it didn't much matter what Iraqis thought. And they thought that before. I remember I was in... Uh, in Washington briefly for a couple of months just before 2003 war. And uh, I was talking to a, an American journalist, uh, uh, I knew a senior American journalist, and he was explaining some American plans for Iraq. And I said, well, I don't think Iraqis will like that very much. And he said, well, who cares what they think? Then when they got to Baghdad very easily, and more easily than they expected, Saddam, the Iraqi army hadn't fought, that reinforced it. A lot of their things, people say, why did they, you know, dissolve the Iraqi army, why did they do all these mad things at the beginning? Well, the answer is they thought it didn't much matter what the Iraqis thought. Because then gradually they started to realize that the Iraqis had deliberately not fought. Um, and uh, they really then had, they did have to pay attention. 
in a broader sense, you know, why is it, um, I don't know, it is pretty amazing. Because they do it in Iraq 2003, they do it in Libya in 2011. Mm. They sort of try to do it in Syria in 2013. Uh, why uh, is it that they don't? I think there was up to maybe 2015 in Syria, they did thought it didn't, you know. I remember talking to a senior diplomat about this. He said, oh, all this stuff about Syria spreading, you know, it wasn't going to be true. This is 2012. Obviously, it was. I think that they didn't really mind. Then, it was when the big migration started to Europe and when the terror attacks started, they realized that this couldn't be confined to the area. But prior. Prior to that, I think, despite all the sort of humanitarian stuff, I think uh, they didn't really care. And um, they thought it would better to keep in with, you know, existing powers like Turkey and Saudi Arabia Sorry, and Ghatar yeah. and the others. Mm. Can we have a... Are there one any more? more? One more? Two more? Let's do an internet question now. Uh, it <laughs> feels bad about the internet people okay. now. Um, Jimmy asks, what's Patrick's view of the white helmets? Is there anything in the conspiracy theories denouncing them? Oh. I, don't I, don't, I don't sort of have a, a fixed view. I mean, obviously, they do go around helping people. Um, obviously, the opposition has sort of publicized this strongly. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. People are fighting war. You know, you you have guys, you know, sort of in your camp or sort of. You know, you publicize that. You don't publicize negative stuff. So I don't. I don't. Uh, I think one can become too sort of conspiratorial about that. Can we have two more, just for the Let's sake of gender more, balance? One there and one there. <laughs> Mine's very simple. I just wanted to thank you, Patrick, because for decades you've been a source of information that we just wouldn't know otherwise. And without you and Fisk, we wouldn't have a bloody clue what was going on. So just I hope you go on for many more decades. And I wondered if there were any other journalists that you know from wherever, not just Britain, that were people we should look to for information along the same lines. Yeah, I mean, there are. There are sort of good people around always a bit less. I mean, there's something in America there are less, part of it's just that there are less American newspapers around, you know. Um, and it all seems to be very sort of conventional now. It seemed to me in the past, I was thinking of sort of 82 war Israeli invasion, you know, you'd, you'd have somebody on the Chicago Tribune, you know, or the LA Times or somewhere else who took a more skeptical view of things. Now just the quantity of people, Americans deployed, is pretty small. Um, the um, I think that sort of all movements now have much more sophisticated PR operations. So you you, you know you need to pumping out news. Uh, the um, and realized you know that when you have a fast moving situation, if you if you if you pump out news in in your uh, in your favor, then it's going to be covered and so forth. Um, but, um, um, yeah, overall, I, I feel it's got worse. I, I'm not going to sort of give names, so I have to sort of think about it, right? who I think is good and, and who isn't. But, yeah, I mean, there are quite a lot of people who still produce good stuff. I'm just finally see isn't it? Yeah. 
politics. Uh, what do you think will be the, the result of this battle in, in Mosul, and what do you think will be the, the fallout from it, I suppose? How will it impact this conflict at the moment? Thanks. Well, you know, there's, there's still so many things in play there. It seems to me unlikely that ISIS will pull out because that was their great victory, taking Mosul in June 2014. And they genuinely portrayed this and I think believed that this was a sign of divine assistance. Uh, or if they lose it, obviously that the contrary argument works. Uh, certainly a lot of the ISIS Daesh commanders come from Iraq. A lot of them come from the Mosul area. Uh, they won't easily go to Syria, which isn't necessarily better for them. Also, they're going to fight anywhere better to fight in Mosul because it's a big city. Um, it's a Sunni city. It's more difficult for the uh, their enemies to use firepower as they did in, you know, most Ramadi is completely destroyed. It used to be a city of uh, three or four hundred thousand. You know, there's another town outside Fallujah, not Fallujah itself, which used to have three, uh, three, 30,000 people in it, and uh, the Americans say there are four buildings still standing, you know. Um, the, so I think it's more difficult for them to do that, particularly with a lot of media there, to bomb the whole of Mosul, so more likely they'll fight there. Um, but then you have this fragmentation of those who are attacking them. The Iraqi army isn't that strong. Uh, if they get involved in street fighting. I mean, they have some good units, but the, then they'll get entangled in fleet uh, street fighting, or they could do. Would they then bring in the, the Hashid, uh, the uh, Shia paramilitaries, with all the political consequences? Uh, what would Turkey do, and so forth? I sort of feel that at the end of the day, it will probably fall, but particularly because the Americans want it to, to happen, and uh, the other people pushing this uh, particular offensive. What happens then? Um, I don't know. The whole Sunni population of Iraq is under threat. It's a fifth of the population. Um, and um, because you, you notice sectarianism there has grown. You know, was, you know for, for a day, a, a town was captured today called Karakosh. It's a Syrian Catholic town. I know people from it. Uh, it was recaptured today by the Iraqi army. Now, the, the, the people from this town, are they, you know, they're pretty nice people. They're not sort of very political people, but they're all convinced uh, that the Sunni villagers around Karakosh were complicit with ISIS in taking over the place. You know, that they, they don't, they won't want to talk to these people. They may, you know, they may try to kill them. The Yazidis, for very good reason, um, do not want any Sunni Arab villagers around them. So sectarianism is very deep. What will happen in Mosul itself? Um, I don't know, will people flee, you know? They're, then, you know, the sort of Baghdad government is making nice, so is the Kurdish government saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want sectarianism and so forth. That all sounds nice, but what if you're a sort of Sunni, you know, you come across a checkpoint in the middle of the night with sort of uh, guys who don't like you. And they always say, oh, yes, we'll let everybody through, you know, we want people to go back, live a normal life. But we must, you know, there are uh, ISIS sleeper agents. That's the phrase you hear in northern Syria and Iraq. There are sleeper agents, sleeper cells everywhere. You know, it's paranoia. It's very dangerous paranoia because they believe this. I, don't, I, I think there may be a few, but practically very few. So there's this atmosphere of hysteria. That's what makes sort of, uh, 
Mosul so vulnerable. Almost mm. anything could happen there. You know, the Christians were all pushed out. Mm. Uh, a lot of them will go back, but they'll go back to sell their houses. But most of the Christians want to get out of there now. Um, and um, the same in Karakosh. And it's a great pity because this was one of the few areas, you know, in the world, in the Middle East, you know, where there was a sort of mosaic of people, uh, you know, Christians of different types, people who'd been, you know, been different sects that had been there for 1,500, 1,800 years, you know, peculiar people like the Shabak, the Yazidis, you know, with their, their, their amalgam of different religions, you know, and all that is, is disappearing now. And it's very difficult to hold it together. Uh, people are just too frightened. I do a, I do a Christian, uh, Syrian, a Catholic, uh, Syrian Catholic uh, uh, priest who uh, had been in Rome for 17 years. Then the Pope had this thing of encouraging Christians to stay in Iraq. This was five or six years ago. And so he went back to encourage Christians to stay. And he was saying to me, he just turned right round. Now he's telling Christians, get out, you know. There's no life for you here. It's too dangerous. Mm. Um, so all that is ending. So where will that leave Mosul? Um, sort of isolated, you know. I mean, it depends, you know, will the city itself survive? Probably it will. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's going to, and what will happen after? Will the Turks come in? You know, this sort of uh, endless stuff. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, Mosul has been the heart since 2003. It's been captured or recaptured five times. Uh, the first time the Kurds came in, immediately looted the place. Mm. Um, and there was fighting then. Then we had General Petraeus in the 101st Airborne, uh, quite sensible, sort of realized that debarthification was a disaster and would having meetings with um, Iraqi officers so they could all get it. It was like some sort of Baptist meeting. You raised your hand and you didn't renounce the bath party and you got a little piece of paper. Uh, so you realized about which it was very important because it meant you could get a job. Now, it, Mosul was always the big recruitment ground for the Iraqi army. So even under Saddam, the defense minister always came from Mosul or Nineveh, probably. Uh, so then, but then the end of that year in 2004, uh, because things had gone quite well and the Americans had thinned out their troops, and then you had the battle for Fallujah further south. So they sent the remaining troops down to Fallujah. And without the media noticing, the opposition then took Mosul, captured it. Uh, they just marched straight in. The Iraqi army, such and police such as it was, threw away their weapons and ran. Uh, so, and they stayed about, about a week, then the government came back. But it was always very, you know, it was always tetchy, it was always up in the air. And I, I used to go there a lot because I knew the deputy governor who was a Kurd. It was run partly by the Kurds, partly by the CIA, so far as I could see. And I know I'm not joking, I mean, the Americans had a big influence then. But even then, you know, you'd go, I'd go and see the governor who lived in this sort of fortified residence on the west side of the Tigris. And you'd have to sort of either go in a very fast car and the, um, and the, the, the police, there the were police, but the, it was a general assumption of those trying to rule Mosul at the time that the police all worked for the opposition. Um, and then, um, so they never really, you know, it was always up at the, uh, Al-Qaeda always had strength there. They were always had protection, levying protection money there. The, um, the, um, they got a lot of their finances from there. Um, so, you know, then obviously ISIS takes it. 
in 2014, uh, the army and police run away. Um, what happens now? Uh, so, I mean, I can't really believe it's the last battle for Mosul. I think, I think there'll be more. It's too much, but it's on all these sectarian ethnic fault lines and something, something will crack. Not optimistic. No, well, not much of this book is, unfortunately. A lot of it is. A lot of good well, jokes in there. No, there's some great stories in there. There's mm. some really good. There's some really good characters in this book. It's um, and ju actually just talking about let's let's leave it on this because we're talking about everything that governments have got wrong, and uh, you'll see this blurb when you buy it. This is from the uh, judges of the Foreign Affairs Journalist of the Year Award in 2014, and they said. Patrick Coburn spotted the emergence of ISIS much earlier than anybody else and wrote about it with a depth of understanding that was just in a league of its own. Nobody else was writing that stuff at the time, and the judges wondered whether the government should consider pensioning off the whole of, the M whole of MI6 and hiring Patrick Coburn instead. <laughs> so on that, thank you so much for being well, with thank us. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.